Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and I'm super excited to have you here to share this amazing interview with you today. I am interviewing Andrea Sager, who is a lawyer who specializes in working with designers and brands to protect themselves and protect their designs, and I'm super excited to share all the amazing knowledge that she shares with us. Um, Quick heads up on the audio quality Uh, This is the first time it's happened on my side. We had a big tech staff through that I could not get fixed in the middle of the interview. So we're using the backup audio track of my audio. So my audio might sound a little rougher than you're used to hearing. Um, It's not too bad, but it's not compared to, it's not as good as what you might compare to in previous episodes. So please be mindful and and I I graciously thank you for getting through that. It's very good quality uh, content. So I hope you can get through that and enjoy the content that Andrea has to share. dive really deep into everything from copywriting your designs to trademarking your the name of your company and how to protect yourself to make sure that other brands don't knock you off what to do if they do and also what to do if other brands come after you when they when maybe they think you're knocking them off um, she shares tons of great ways you can sort of DIY a lot of this stuff you don't have to get a lawyer involved necessarily there are some cases where it probably is best to do that and she talks about you know when and why you might want to make that decision uh, but she's super transparent with all of her advice and guidance on you know when you can kind of figure something out yourself versus when you might just want to have to pay to get someone involved to do things right and make sure that you are uh, abiding by the law or protecting yourself correctly um, against uh, another brand who might be infringing upon your designs. So thank you so much for listening. I know you're going to enjoy this episode regardless of the little tech snafu and the audio quality in my voice. Uh, but before we dive into that, I wanted to remind you that SFD is way more than a podcast. I have tons of templates, tutorials, free ebooks, and so much more on things to help you get ahead in the fashion industry from tech packs to illustrator to portfolios and so, so much free stuff for you guys. So um, if you have not checked out any of the stuff beyond the podcast, do yourself a favor, head on over to soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. Drop your information there and I will instantly send you my best free stuff. I put it together a great compilation just for podcast listeners and I know you'll love it. Again, that's soheidi.com slash email. Um, If you're not into that, I get it, but uh, also check us out on Instagram. I do try to post there fairly regularly. That is also at soheidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I. So make sure that you're following along to get access to all the free resources in addition to the podcast that I put out there. And one last quick request. If you do enjoy this podcast, there are two things you can do. Either give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you think we deserve that. I hope you do. And also share the show with a friend. You know, I, I was thinking about the other day in the 
best podcast that I have found out about. I've heard of from a friend. Someone's told me, oh my God, you have to listen to this episode. You have to check out this show. And I know that's a way that the SFD podcast has grown. So make sure if you have a friend, a coworker, a cousin, anyone out there who you think would enjoy the show, um, I'm always grateful if you pass along the this specific episode or another one that you think they might enjoy. So thank you for that. Um, as always, you can access the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. And now let's jump into the interview with Andrea. Welcome, Andrea, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Um, can you start out by telling everybody who you are and what you do in the sort of fashion world? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, so I am a small business attorney. I really have my niche in trademarks and copyright. I actually started with my little boutique niche uh, with the boutique industry because I owned a women's clothing boutique. I started online and then I opened a brick and mortar store. And then once I started practicing law, I sold the business. I actually, I basically built a business to where it was really turnkey for someone else. And then once it was time for me to just move on, I handed it over to someone else. And that's really how I got my start within the fashion industry and then with the boutique industry. With that whole niche that I have, that's really how I got my start with my law firm because I had that whole network of other business owners. And that honestly just really allowed me to get my feet wet and really push forward with the whole legal, the law firm that I have now. Yeah. So... Like, what was it, and maybe they were kind of disconnected and then they came together at the end, but you had your boutique, and were you, like, experiencing things within that business that made you think, gosh, I got to get out there and help some of these brands protect themselves, or did that just kind of come afterwards? So, it kind of just came together, um... I started the boutique in law school and it, it sounds really weird because people are like you started a business in law school. <laughs> like you have <laughs> time like, to yeah. even breathe and eat and start a business. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So I was, I hate saying it cause it sounds it just it sounds weird, but I was kind of bored in law school and, um, I just kind of need something. So I, I actually started selling on Poshmark. I, I started selling stuff out of my closet on Poshmark and then I started selling boutique items and then I had my whole website online boutique and then it really transformed to a brick and mortar store and so that really grew and it did really well and then as I was in law school I had have you heard the boutique hub what's it called the boutique hub I have not no okay so it's a really big resource for uh, boutique owners, uh, it, it, they really bring together service providers, boutique owners, wholesalers, and that that's the membership that I was part of when I owned my boutique, and that's how I got to know so many other boutique owners, and they kind of, I mean, they knew me throughout my journey through law school, so once I started practicing law, a lot of people reached out for help with trademarks, and that's uh, not what I did, yeah, yeah, that's not what I did at the firm I was at, and it was a bigger firm, and these, I mean, these were small businesses, and they, the firm really just didn't want them as clients, and right. I was like, listen, I have this whole network, like thousands of boutique owners, and they need my help, so honestly, I was just like, okay, they need my help, 
somebody's got to help them. So I left the firm, branched out on my own, and that's kind of how the two came together. Okay, gotcha. So let's talk about, um, because a lot of the listeners out there either have their own fashion brand or are in the process of starting their own fashion brand. And I don't even know where the best place to start is, so I'll kind of let you drive that. But um, I think, I shouldn't say I think, one of the most common questions that comes up amongst my audience, I reached out on Instagram to ask people if they had any questions for the interview. Um, and the most common thing that comes up is like, you know, how do I copyright or trademark or whatever the word is, protect my designs? Um, is that even possible? What, what, how can I defend myself if someone copies my design? Like all that sort of stuff. And so I'd love to kind of start with that or what that even looks like um, from a legal perspective. If that yeah, makes sense so to think- start there. Yeah, absolutely. So within the fashion industry, there's like so many different, you know, ways you can look at it. But specifically as a fashion designer, the number one thing you're concerned with is copyrights because the copyrights are your content and that's your design, the stuff that you're actually like the creative, the creativity that you're putting out into the world. So copyrights are really what you have to be focused on. Okay. And yeah, and we actually, um, I work with a number of fashion designers and all we do is monitor their designs online because as I'm sure you're familiar with I mean you know Susan and Susie Homemaker sitting at home and she thinks she can sell something from her kitchen table by copying another design not knowing that copyright infringement but it's hurting all the designers so we literally like I have a whole team that literally just scours the internet all day trying to take down copyright infringement copyright infringed designs Okay, but it's not, like, from what I understand, it's not quite that simple. It's like, what can you actually copyright within the designs? Yeah, so the it that does get really rocky because at the end of the day, no idea is original. Yeah. And the laws are in place in order for people to build upon each other. And I'm sure you've heard, oh, if you just change it up 30%, then it's not copyright infringement. Yes, I have heard heard the 30% rule. (laughs) Yeah, well, that does not exist. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That is just a mythical rule that I don't even know where that came from. I've looked, because when I first started out on my own, people were always asking me this question. And I honestly, when I started out, I didn't understand copyright law. Not, I mean, I understood it, but not to this extent because I had always heard the 30% rule. And I was like, okay, I really have to figure this out. <laughs> and I could never, ever find any case where, you know, any judge or anybody had, you know, cited this 30% rule. So what I basically tell my clients is if, you can tell that it was derived from another design, then you're getting pretty close to copyright infringement. Mm. I, you know, it's, it's so hard to say like, okay, if you can tell, then it's copyright infringement because that's not the case. You know, it's just a lot of times I just have to get my eyes on it to say, okay, well, this could be copyright infringement, but that's a good baseline that I, I tell all of my clients, like, listen, if you're create, and I tell them if you're creating a design based off of this other design and you're basically looking at it while creating your version, 
that is copyright infringement. Okay. And I've had somebody who um, they had this one, they wanted to create, I think they were selling to Dillard's and Dillard's wanted this one design. And my client was like, Oh, well, I can make that design. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> so yeah, you, Number one, you have to, I mean, you have to be original. You have to be creative. And number two, when you're being creative, it's okay to have inspiration. Sure. It is okay to be inspired by other designs, but it's a very fine line between inspiration and infringement, and it's not always a clear line. So it, it's really tough. It really is tough. It's because it's pretty subjective to say, if you can look at the two garments and, and say... I mean, one person could think they do look similar, and one person could say, no, they seem like two different things. That's so subjective. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, honestly, it's very hard for the courts to even decide on it. So, there's yeah. honestly, there's not a lot of case law with copyrights, because at the end of the day, nobody wants to really push it the right. whole way, because it's a toss-up. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Right. So... We, whenever we're monitoring designs for clients, we're not trying to sue anyone. We're just trying to get them removed from the internet. Ah, that's your main goal. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So I want to dive a little bit more into that, but first I'm curious to know what, as a designer, what do I have to do to copyright my design is like just creating it and putting it out there and like having some photos, is it automatically protected or do I have to file paperwork or does it depend on the state? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So you have copyright protection the moment the work is fixed in a tangible medium. So that, I mean, that, and that's the legalese version. Yeah, give me the layman's the terms. <laughs> yeah. The moment that you have it basically fixed, either, um, you know, printed out on a piece of paper or if it's, um, even if it's just a design on the computer, that can be considered a tangible medium to where it ha now has copyright protection. And you do not have to have a registration to have copyright protection. A lot of people, a lot of times when I'm, you know, monitoring designs, they, the infringer is always notified of our takedown report. Now, they try, sometimes they'll try to be smart, like, okay, well, I'll take it down as long as you send me the registration. And I have to explain that's not how copyrights work. Mm. We have protection the moment this was created by my client. Now, you do, that doesn't mean you don't want to get a registration because you can still apply with the U.S. Copyright Office. That's um, copyright.gov. Okay. And you can, yeah, it's totally doable by yourself. It's, the filing fee is only $55. Um, per design? Yes. Yeah, so if it's okay. already been published, so already published out into the world, then it's $55 per design. However, if you, you know, batch create your design, if you wait to publish them, then you can publish more, you can bulk register them in one registration and only pay one fee. Oh, so you could have like your whole collection of 12 pieces and just batch it and it would be cheaper. Yes. Okay. And then that, well, keep going. I, I mean, I have so many little teeny questions, but keep going. <laughs> yeah. So we, um, with with the copyright, it's important to know that you do have protection the moment you publish the work and the, or the moment that it's fixed. 
So it doesn't matter that you don't have a registration, but the registration is still important and it still provides a lot of benefits. So that with the registration, number one, if you file for registration within three months of publication or before it is infringed upon, then you're eligible for what's called statutory damages. Oh. And statutory damages, basically, it's an it provides you with an easier means of proving your damages if you have to sue someone. And if you're thinking, oh, I, I don't want to deal with suing somebody, blah, 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 blah. Listen, I've been told that a hundred times, and you never know what's going to happen and how, you know, <laughs> how your emotions are going to go crazy when you see somebody that has blatantly ripped off your design. Yeah. So, and at the same time, you, a lot of people don't end up suing, but once you're eligible for statutory damages, it's a humongous bargaining chip. So with the statutory damages, basically the easiest way to explain it, it's just, it's an easier way for you to prove how much you've been damaged. And the other side has to pay your attorney fees if you do sue them. So, ah. yeah, that's why it's a really, really big bargaining chip. And if you are eligible for statutory damages, then, you know, attorneys will consider litigating it on contingency, which means that you don't pay. They only recoup a percentage of the settlement or um, the amount that they have to pay. If you win. Right. Right. And if you don't win, so, it doesn't cost you anything. Exactly. Okay, right. Yeah, so also with my clients, I definitely when they're eligible for statutory damages, I mean, they pay a settlement. They, cause they, don't, they know that they're going to have to pay money, so they just end up paying a settlement. That way they don't have to, they don't have to go through the lawsuit. They don't have to deal with attorneys. It, the, I can't explain enough how important statutory damages are and not because what you get to recoup from it, but because of how big of a bargaining chip it is. So basically if XYZ brand knocks off your designs and you had filed at copyright.gov and you had that, uh, what's it called? You have it, um, Registered. Registered. Okay. Just re I'm thinking like all these fancy legal terms, but just registered. Then you could go to company XYZ and say, look, we're registered. This is copyright registered. We have, can, we have statutory damage. I don't know if I'm using these words right. Statutory damages. And the company <laughs> will say, instead of going to court and doing a whole lawsuit, we'll just pay you X dollars to make this go away. Exactly. And you just settle. Okay. Yeah. Because nobody wants to deal, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of times it's just easier to do that and more cost-effective and time-effective for everybody than to deal with going to court, and that's a whole process. Yeah, yeah, like I have one situation right now um, where it's a really big wholesaler. They ripped off one of my really small clients who just hand-paints things, uh -huh. and they literally just printed her hand-painted design on thousands of shirts. Oh, my God. Them. Yeah. And their attorney, like, they were just like, oh, we stopped selling it, whatever, we're done with this. I'm like, no, we're not done with this. <laughs> and their attorney even tried to be like, look, you're not, because she's not eligible for statutory damages. Oh. So, I mean, that's the part that 
distinct, but at the same time, this is a big wholesaler who sold thousands and thousands of shirts. So the attorney tried to tell me, listen, she's not eligible for statutory damages. The damages aren't going to be enough. I'm like, listen, you're not the judge of that. We are judging how much we know that we can recover. So this that's an ongoing battle. But at the same time, if we were eligible for statutory damages, we wouldn't have to keep going back and forth. Like this, like like he specifically said, your client is not eligible for statutory damages. So like they're just trying to give me a hard time about it because the they never registered with copyright.gov. Right. You're trying to base. You're trying to go just based off of. Well, the work was created in some type of hard format, like a, a painting, or it was like posted on Instagram, or it existed on the computer, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Which is like harder to prove because, I mean, okay, a post on Instagram is time stamped and date stamped, but you could say like, okay, what if it was just a physical painting, it's a piece of paper, or a drawing, like how do you really prove that that was created at a certain time period or something? Right, yeah, so it, it gets really tough, but... Okay. Yeah, it it gets really tough, but if if you are if you are putting out work into the world, register that stuff with the copyright office. Okay, and your re- recommendation would be like you know when you're like before you're ready to launch or something, try to batch that. It becomes a little more cost effective. And you said the process is simple: go to copyright.gov and you can kind of DIY it. You don't need it's not super legally complicated. Right. They the copyright office actually does a really good job of explaining the whole process as you're going through it. So they oh. have like you know, like the question bubbles and they tell you how to fill this out or this out, which mm-hmm. it can still get confusing. Sure. But you know, I have clients they'll you know, they'll have me do it and they're like, Hey, is this something I can do on my own? I'm like, Yeah, like you, especially if you figure it out once then it's pretty easy to okay. figure, you know, to keep doing it on your own. Okay, gotcha. Um, so, okay, so that's great, because I did not, I mean, I had never really heard about either registering or especially doing it in bulk, um, which makes me then eligible for statutory damages, like which you said gives me more leverage when going up against a company to defend myself. Um, what about, like, patents? Because I know, yeah, go ahead. No, what's your question? Well, because I actually know a couple people personally who have patented specific things on their garments and use that as protection. So, to protect their, their unique function or feature of their garment. So, one, for example... Um, a, uh, a girlfriend of mine, and she was on the podcast long ago. We'll link to that in the show notes very early in the in the podcast. And she has a brand called The Shirt. And basically, she created this way for there to be a hidden button right around your bust line so that you're, it's not like gaping. And she patented the sort of air quote technology of like how that button was inserted and sewn and hidden into the garment. And so then that's her, she's protected that. And so if another brand comes out and puts that same sort of function of a button there, she has, I think, some legal recourse and or she now has the ability to license that specific little piece of the garment to other brands. So it's like the other brand can make their shirt with the technology that they've licensed from her brand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so can absolutely. you t- is that an area that you that you work in or something that you see designers doing and what does that whole process look like if so? 
So I don't specifically do patents. I have I work with some clients who um, they get cease and desist letters for patents, um, but I don't specifically file for patents. Um, but I did have this one situation where a client of mine created this bracelet and she got a cease and desist letter with this other company who patented the actual bracelet. And the thing is, with this specific bracelet, she wasn't infringing on it because in this situation with this bracelet, all you had to do was just change it up a little bit and oh. it's not patent infringement. Okay. So, that's where you have to be very careful with patents because yes, they do provide a lot of protection, but if somebody can really find a small workaround where it can avoid patent infringement and basically do the same thing, then it's kind of not a waste, but you still have to, I mean, in a, in a way it's an infringer, but they're still skirting around the law to where it's not illegal. So I, I don't do too much in a patent, but that's what I know. So definitely okay. if you're considering a patent, it can, it can provide a lot, a lot of protection, but know that there's still some ways to get around it. But the licensing thing, yes. Like I try to tell my clients all the time. I try to push that on them a lot because that's a way for them to create the passive income, really grow their business and their brand through licensing. Right. Because you are, you're doing the creating and you are selling your design or, you know, your patent, your copyright, your trademark. You're right. licensing that and allowing others to use that and you're making money off of what they're doing. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so I, I'm all for licensing. I love licensing. Yeah. Um, okay, and if I'm not mistaken, um, patent, like, there's specific lawyers who are like, I'm a patent lawyer. Like, that's a specialty. Yeah, so if you're actually doing the one getting the patent, like, filing on behalf of clients, you have to take an actual special bar exam. There's the patent bar. Oh, you have wow. to have a certain undergraduate degree. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. And I am definitely no specialty. It's a it whole other world, yeah. <laughs> right. And if I'm also not mistaken, um, from a designer or a brand's perspective, a patent can be very a, a very expensive and lengthy process to go through to secure. Yeah, so I, I talked to a couple of attorneys because I have a lot of clients. Since I, you know, I work in the fashion world with a lot of designers, I have a lot of people ask me about patents. And basically, they, you know, you've got to be ready to spend $10,000. 10000 okay, as a base. Okay. Yeah, it, it's not, you know, $10,000 and I'll get to work. I mean, it's spread out, but still over two to three years, Yeah, that, that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money. It's huge. And so that's not always feasible. So your best bet is, like you said, you know, pay the $55 or however much it is for your bulk processing to do the registration for your copyright. Yeah. Okay. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. 
Okay, so the patents are really pricey and lengthy. So like I said, just maybe do the copyright stuff to kickstart is on a very like DIY level, like quick, easy, great solution to get, get started with. Right, okay. right. So, um, so that sort of protects the designs. Um, what do you see in terms of like protecting yourself as a business owner? Like how should brands be setting themselves up as a business? Do I need to do an LLC? Do I need to do a corporation? And then kind of like protecting the business itself. And maybe that includes, I mean, maybe there's multiple questions in my comment here, but like, does that include like, you know, trademarking my logo and the name of my brand or what type of research do I probably need to do in advance to maybe make sure that I'm not infringing on someone else's brand name or like that whole process. So a little bit separate from the clothes themselves, but the business side of it. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. So at the minimum, you should be an LLC. That is, I tell people at the minimum, you need to be an LLC because the the protection that it provides is it outweighs any risk or cost that you would face without being an LLC. So when you become, once your business is an LLC, a limited liability company, you are personally protected and you are not liable for the debts of the company. So, so I'm quite sure I understand what that means, but like in layman's terms, explain that, like how that would protect me as a person and maybe my own personal assets. Yeah. So if you are, you go and get, um, maybe you go and rent a brick and mortar shop or, you know, a workspace and they allow you to put it in the business's name. If you were to break that lease, then you would not be personally liable for that lease. Okay. If it's in the name of the business and the business is an LLC. Now, practically, a lot of times landlords, commercial landlords, they will want a personal guarantee uh-huh. because they know they know that uh, <laughs> LLCs aren't, you don't have to be personally liable. So they a lot of times they do require a personal guarantee. But as your business grows, then you are, you're still not liable for the death of the company. Now, uh, there is a lot of confusion. So if you're, you know, you're driving to a job, you're driving to a site for work and you end up hitting someone um, in your car, you get in an accident and it's your fault. That doesn't mean they can't personally come after you, even though you're there for work. Mm -hmm. So, or you're driving there for work and you're an LLC, they can still come after you personally. Okay. Gotcha. And then am I correct in thinking that that could also protect me? Let's say I did maybe infringe upon someone else's copyright either because I just didn't know or some fluke thing happened by chance and I just happened to design this thing that was very, very similar to someone else's thing. And that company then comes and tries to sue me, um, then they're suing the company, which is the LLC, and technically they would not have the ability to attack my personal assets, which might be like if I own my own home, that could be an asset that they could come after. Like all my personal things, they could only... Exactly. Okay, right. Yeah, and at the same time, if maybe you have, you know, a lot of debt in your personal name, the personal creditors can't come after your business assets. Ah, right, okay. Interesting. I never thought about it in that sort of opposite direction. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I mean, I tell clients, they're like, hey, that's probably the question I get 10 times a day. Should I be an LLC? <laughs> yes. Yes, you should. It's, um, it's, it's not hard. It's not expensive. And a lot of people think it'll affect their tax status. But that's not the case unless you are an LLC taxed as an escort. When you are an LLC, it's not a federally recognized business entity. It is only recognized by your state. So although the state recognizes you're an LLC, for when it comes to your taxes, you're still regarded as a sole proprietor, so you're still filing that Schedule C come tax time if you are an LLC and you have not elected to be taxed as an S-Corp. Okay, so that's it starts to get a little bit more complicated with that, so maybe just LLC and, like, file as yeah. an LLC. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and I, I, I understand a lot of that because I'm actually set up in more complex ways for tax advantages and stuff. So I get that. But that, you know, took me many years to kind of get to. Like, if you're first starting out, just keep it simple and do the LLC. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, And then what about, like, my logo and the name of my brand? If I set up just an LLC, like, what does that actually do for me? Yeah. So, okay. Once you have your business and you're branding yourself, you want to protect the name of your company with a trademark. Okay. And that is, you know, the big three things for that can be trademarked are your brand name, your logo, and your slogan. Now, those aren't the only three, but those are typically three things that businesses start with. And in business, trademarks aren't really an end game. So people will say, oh, I, you know, I have a trademark on my, my company name. You know, that's it. I'm done with trademarks. And really the whole goal of trademarks is to build a wall and we want to build a wall where you it's so high that nobody can get over it and then fringe on any part of your business, any, you know, brand identity of your business. So if you have a podcast, the name of the podcast can be protected. If you have an online course that can be protected. If you have a certain, if you have a certain name for a product line that can be protected with a trademark. So there's, there's many, many things that can be protected with a trademark. So once you have, you know, once you get started with trademarks, don't think it's an end game because most likely you still have other things within your business that can be protected with a trademark. Okay. So it's not like an umbrella thing. Like I kind of have to look at each, like you said, maybe the collection has a name or maybe I have this signature piece that I put out and I name that I would want to trademark that in addition to just the name of my brand. Yes, exactly. Okay. And with the trademark process, is that as simple is that also as simple as doing the copyright stuff we talked about earlier or does that get a little bit more complex and costly? Yeah, so the trademark process is definitely more complex than the copyright process. With the copyright process, you literally just file and then one day either you know, somewhere between two and like nine months later, you receive your copyright certificate in the mail. Okay. Really random, actually. Um, but with the trademark office, it is definitely a more in-depth process. So with my, so taking you like through my process, I have clients, they reach out and like, hey, can I get trademark information? I send them the information and I tell them the very first step is a search. We definitely have to run a comprehensive search because we want to know what else is out there. Mm-hmm. We And a lot of people will say, oh, I search Google, I own the domain name, I search social media, there's nothing else out there. 
Well, I say great. That's a great place to start. But trademark infringement doesn't just occur when it's the same exact name. Mm. It can occur when there are similar names. So trademark infringement happens when there is a likelihood of confusion. So what is likely to cause confusion? You don't know every possibility that is likely to cause confusion. So your search is just a basic search. It's very basic. And we have to run a comprehensive search because I get clients all the time. They're like, I've been operating for, you know, however many years. And now I want to file for a trademark. And then I tell them, look, there's this, this, this you probably won't get a registration or we have to spend more money to petition to cancel their registration because you were in business first. Mm. So there's, yeah, there's a million things that can happen, but because I I do get a lot of pushback with the trademark search because people think, Oh, I've been operating. I haven't got a cease and desist letter. I, you know, I search Google, but it's so important to know that it's not just the same exact name that we're looking for. We're looking for anything that is likely to cause confusion. Amongst an average person, which again, it's, it just all becomes very subjective. Right, right. So, because I'll get people will come to me like, hey, so what can I do? Like somebody is coming to me thinking that I'm, you know, this store an hour away from me or, you know, this other online store that's, you know, across the country, um, they're shopping with me thinking that it's somebody else. Well, that is the definition of trademark infringement. I don't know who's infringing on who. I mean, you know, I have to do research to determine that. But if that is happening, then that is 100% trademark infringement because that's what you're trying to prevent with trademarks is consumer confusion mm. and, you know, the brand confusion. Gotcha. Okay, so that gets a little bit more fuzzy and complicated. Yeah, so after we run the search, I basically have um, one of three conversations with the client. I tell them, oh, this will be good to go. I don't see any issues happening. Um, Or, hey, I think, you know, we might get a refusal, but I think we can overcome that refusal because of this and this. Or it's like, listen, you need to rebrand. You don't need to be using this name because you are infringing on somebody else. Um, Those are hard conversations. Actually, um, I actually had one, uh, oh, I have one guy who has a multi-million dollar company. He's in like year three. Obviously, he started this as a hobby, which, you know, most businesses start out like that these days. It's just a hobby. And it's just, his business has absolutely taken off. And I was like, look, dude, we got to like figure your copy, your trademark stuff out. Well, I looked into it and I was like, listen, you, like, you have to change your name now. Like you are still under the radar, but you st- like, you have to change your name now before you are not under the radar and somebody comes after you for yeah. trademark infringement. So that, that's a really hard place to be. But I think he, he's very thankful that it's happening now and not, you know, not that, not because he's being sued for it. Right, right, right. Oh, and like you, like that just happens by chance because you're like, oh, you come up with this name and you're like, this works, it's great. You build this business, it becomes somewhat successful or very successful, and then all of a sudden you discover after the fact that you're like, oh God, I they, this other company who's perhaps bigger could come after me. Yeah, and when we were having this conversation, we're actually in the same mastermind, which is how we met, and we were talking about it and he was, he was the one who brought it up to me. I didn't even run the search and he was like, 
um, he was like, so there's this other company with this name. Do you think uh, that would be a problem? And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes, that is a big problem. So, yeah, that that happens. But, okay. it, I mean, it, it happens. It's part of business. And you want it to happen before it becomes a very big issue. Okay. I also had another client who has a clothing store who... Gosh, she's been in business for almost 10 years, and she just now approached me about getting a trademark because she's like, look, there's somebody, you know, an hour away from me who, and her, the name of her business is pretty much the same thing, and it's causing confusion, and so I, I did the search, and come to find out there's a fashion line with the same name, and they filed for a trademark you know, I think it was six or seven years ago. Well, once you have your trademark and you renew it, then you, once you have the initial renewal with your trademark, you basically cannot petition to cancel that trademark for priority. So my client had priority. She was in business before this other company, but because they were already past their initial renewal, she can't petition to, to, cancel their trademark. So she's having to either, she's kind of trying to decide, okay, do I want to keep trying to fly under the radar or do I want to rebrand? But at the same time, she's been in business for 10 years. That's a process. I mean, you can, yeah, yeah, you can imagine what kind of goodwill she has with her name and how big of a headache that would be Uh, to rebrand after 10 years. No, no, no. I totally get it. I get it. But because oh gosh so probably it's worthwhile to at least invest in the time and the money to trademark the name of your business that like you want to go by on your url and your social media and all that stuff and spend that up front rather than getting three years down the line you've built this brand loyalty against this name and finding out you have to re- redo it because that's expensive and it causes customer confusion and you're and like the loyalty thing can get weird and they're like wait why are you changing your name it just causes a lot of problems exactly yeah okay. Yeah, and a, another big one that people push back is their legal name. You know, people are like, oh, I just conduct business with my legal name. I don't need a trademark. Your own personal like, name. No. Yeah, well, just because you have a legal name doesn't mean that you're still legal to conduct business with it. Ah. So there's, I mean, there's a number of stories about fashion designers who can no longer conduct business with their name. I mean, they lose the rights to their name because they trademarked it, they either sold the business or whatever, like Calvin Klein. He's still, I mean, he's still part of his brand. He's not, you know, he's not the CEO. He's not really the the brain behind the brand anymore, but he's still part of the company. But he can't go out and start a new company with the name Calvin Klein. I mean, he can if it doesn't have anything to do with the fashion industry, but anything, any little thing that could be confused with his brand label, he can't go start Go out there and start a new business. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was the same with um, Kate Spade, who ultimately sold her business and sold her name at that point. So it's like you can do it under your name, and that like, but at some point, like, you can wind up losing the rights to your own name. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy, wild. So, is there a rough range? So you said about ten. Like I know you mentioned earlier, like the patent thing is like maybe roughly ten thousand. What are we looking at if I'm a brand and I'm like, okay, I should probably figure out this trademark thing for my my brand name. Just one name. What am I looking at in terms of an expense for that? Roughly a range. 
Yeah, so I tell clients for me, the baseline is $1,650. Okay. That, um, that's for one trademark in one class. And trademarks, you can file in more than one class. So with the trademark office, there's 45 different classes of goods and services. And you do want to file in every class that you're operating in because you want to be protected mm. for everything that you're doing. So I'll take a, you know, a boutique, for example, if they, they have a store, so they, they file for store services. Well, if they're not private labeling, if they're not, you know, manufacturing their own clothing, then they don't necessarily need to file within the apparel class. But if they are, then they want to have the store services and the apparel. And within the apparel class, that covers clothing, shoes, hats. Um, it doesn't cover sunglasses. It doesn't cover handbags. Oh, jewelry. Those are, <laughs> yeah, those are all separate classes. So you can see how it adds up really quickly. And it gets, yeah, it gets very detailed and confusing to understand, like, what do I need to do and which class do I need? And you want to make sure you do it once and you do it right to really protect yourself. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's a good investment to start with. Probably before I even, like, finalize and decide that's the name I want to go under. Like, don't start anything. Don't design the logo. Don't do all this stuff until you kind of get that dialed in because otherwise you're just going to wind up having to go backwards and redo the work. Yeah, so what I tell people, because I get a lot of questions like, okay, I'm just starting out. When should I trademark? Well, I tell people if you're just starting out and you're kind of testing the waters, because that's, I mean, today, that's, that's what a lot of businesses are doing. They're just testing the water. Right. But at the same time, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to be an overnight sensation. So at the very least, you want to run that trademark search. That trademark search will provide you with so much peace of mind that you'll still be operating knowing that you're not, you're most likely not infringing on someone else. Okay. And can I, I mean, besides, you know, like you said, searching Google for like the exact same name, is there a way for me to sort of finagle a trademark search DIY style or do I still need to consult with an expert such like yourself? So you can definitely do a basic knockout search and that's the basic, you know, searching Google for your name, social media, domain name, and then you can kind of try different combinations. Okay. So, um, Maybe if it's a multi-word. Um, so for you, like, so Heidi, you could try S-O Heidi and maybe spelling Heidi a different way. So those are those are kind of things to think about when you're trying to do your own search. Okay. Think of different combinations. Are there different spellings that people can use? Will it be Heidi So or, you know, So Heidi Blank? Right. You know, yeah, there's all these things you have to think about. Okay. So I can start with that and, you know, maybe cross my fingers that I got to like the 80% mark and then hope there's nothing left in that 20%. If, if perhaps, you know, like, like investing, you know, $1,650 or a couple thousand dollars up front, I mean, it's very expensive and, and obviously all the costs that come along with starting a fashion brand add up very quickly. So it's something I guess maybe you as an individual have to make the judgment call on what's right for you. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, so, okay, so the 1650 for me, that includes the trademark search. So okay. if you want to just do the search, that's 450. Okay. So, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're going to be manufacturing and, you know, spending 50, $100,000 on, you know, your first order, $450 is nothing to it's make sure that you're yeah. able. 
yeah, to, you know, be able to brand it as what you want it to be. Right. Because so, I, so I, I did a little bit of wholesale and manufacturing when I was, uh, when I had my clothing store. So I, I totally understand the manufacturing process, the samples and all that, how expensive it can get. Um, so definitely running a trademark search is well worth it to make sure that you're able to even sell the product. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, okay, so I think we've covered quite a bit in terms of, like, how to set up to protect myself as a company, as a brand, my designs, how to protect my personal assets, you know, with, like, the LLC and how to structure my business. But I'm curious to know, um, what do I start doing when it comes to one of two things? One being some other brand starts attacking me for copywriting or for copyright infringement or for maybe trademark infringement or vice versa. Like I'm an individual brand owner and I start seeing on social media, this really unique design that I had made. And I see this other brand like completely knocking that off. What do I do at that stage where I need to either take action against another company or they're coming to attack me and I need to defend myself somehow? Is that, is that where like, I really just need to get a lawyer involved or what do you suggest? So it honestly depends on kind of what level you're at. So I have some very, very small clients who have this issue with, you know, Susie Homemaker that's sitting at home. Do you want to get an attorney involved in that? Well, Mm. maybe not. Like if she just started in business yesterday and she she sold one thing, you may not want to spend several hundred dollars on a cease and desist letter. Okay. So you, that it may be worth it for you to reach out and just educate. Just educate her and say, look, this is the law. This is, you know, you infringed on me and my company. Um, and just kind of be friendly in that way. A lot of times that happens, and I tell my clients that right away. I'm like, listen, have you reached out yourself or not? Um, if they have and they ignore, they ignore my client, that's, you know, a lot of times that's when they do engage me to send a cease and desist letter on okay. their behalf. Okay. Now, if we're speaking in much bigger terms where it's, um, you know, Walmart maybe that's selling an infringing product, then you definitely want to get a lawyer involved because they're not going to listen to somebody that's just sitting at home. Right. You can imagine how many, how many claims they get like that. Every oh my God. Like, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so just base it on the severity of the situation. Right, right. Because, I I mean, I know who my client is, and I know that a lot of them are very small. They don't necessarily have, um, and even if they're a bigger client, the infringer may not be a very big party, and they they may not be making very much money, so it may not be worth it to really have me pursue them. But... Some, you know, and then I have some clients that are just like, I don't ever want to deal with it. You handle all of it. Right. So in that situation, then I will. But for those clients who are a lot smaller and they're very money conscious, then we do what we can to help them save as much money and legal fees as possible. Okay, gotcha. And what do you see, and I asked this question specifically because I interviewed someone on the show about this, um, a company by the name of Solstice Intimates, who has, they've built a really great, amazing name for themselves. They have a very strong, I would say, cult following, um, and they do intimate apparel, and 
very heavy advertising or uh, very heavy engagement and following on social media. And they've had, I think, a couple times, and then I learned that this is a big thing, um, these really cheap uh, suppliers overseas knocking them off Mm -hmm. and putting it on, like, Alibaba. And they, like, steal. It's terrible. I'm sure you know this. They take the pictures and everything. I mean, they literally... It happens all the time. All the time. And I... I have so many clients that it happens to. And we, like, sometimes, you know, for the clients that we monitor on a monthly basis, we get them taken care of. We try to get them taken care of right away. Sometimes I have people who come to me just for one particular design that Alibaba got a hold of. Uh So now all of these, you know, small buy-in groups here in the U.S. and Facebook groups, they're, you know, selling it for a quarter of the price that they're selling it for. Right. Um you know, sometimes they'll have me just basically remove every possible thing on the internet. Um, yeah, they, that's the worst. It happens all the time. And sometimes you just have that one design and it just really takes off and you got to do what you can to stop them from selling. And I have people who, um, like I had one client who had this sunflower design and China got a hold of it and basically put it on everything possible that you could think of. And it, we, I mean, we were fighting them for months, months, trying to submit takedown notices, you know, ev- you know, 20 a day. And it, it took a long time to really fight that. And my client did recover some money because there were some people in the U.S. who were selling thousands and thousands of dollars with her print on it. Oh, God. So do you have any recourse? Like, let's say you're in the U.S. and the company that's infringing is in the U.S. I imagine you have easier opportunity or easier, better ability to have recourse than, like, fighting a company in China. Do you, what kind of recourse do you have? Like, if the cease and desist letter doesn't work and they're just like, no, we're going to keep doing it, can you do anything? Uh, you can sue them. So you can. Okay. I- yeah, yeah, you can absolutely sue them. A lot of times it's not worth it because uh, it can be very expensive. Okay. But um, sometimes it's just a matter of actually filing the lawsuit and immediately they'll settle. So that's what's happening right now with one um, one situation we have. Um, they've admitted fault. They, they've admitted wrongdoing, and we know exactly how much money my client is entitled to, but they're not going to pay. So now we have to actually just file a lawsuit. So uh. it's... It can be a very big headache. <laughs> oh my gosh! And in that case, like, are they um, liable to pay for the legal fees? No, so they're not, not. eligible for statutory damages. So is that because it, it's international, it were, or taking care? Of, I'm sorry. Is that because it's international, or why is that? Uh, so my client didn't file for a registration in time. Okay. She found, yeah, she found out about the infringement, and then we filed for the registration in order to be able to sue. So I don't, oh. I don't know if I actually mentioned this, but it used to be there was different circuit courts across the U.S. who half of them basically said, okay, you can't sue somebody for copyright infringement until you have heard back from the copyright office, whether it's approved or denied. Uh, And then the other half said, you just have to apply and then you can sue. Well, the Supreme court ruled on that earlier this year. And they said, you have to actually hear back from the copyright office before you can sue. And you said that can take like two to nine months. 
Yeah, and it it's, I say, it's such a big range, but it, honestly, it's just so random, and I hate it, because clients are like, how long does it take? I'm like, um, <laughs> a while? From two to nine months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's, you don't have any idea, like, with the trademark office, there's, you know, this back and forth, you can see the status online, and with a copyright office, like, it's just so random, like, one day you'll get a certificate in the mail. It's just out there yeah. floating, and you have no idea when it's going to hit. <laughs> yeah. So had had they filed for the um, copyright initially, would they be eligible for statutory damages considering this is overseas? I think I just get a little fuzzy because I'm like, well, the U.S. law is different than like the China law. And so where is their crossover? Or I don't know yeah, if that matters. We, uh, we're not going after anybody in China. Okay. We are only going after U.S. sellers because we, so what we do is remove it from Alibaba, all those websites, and that kind of, kind of takes care of the sellers in China. But once the people in the U.S. purchase it to sell it over here, that's when we can go after them. Oh, gotcha. So if it's so everybody just... involved can be sued. So we get people, um, you know, out, you know, there's wholesalers out in the fashion district. They'll be selling an infringed design. And then I have retailers who buy it from them. So the wholesaler in L.A. is liable. The retailer is also liable. Oh, even if the retailer didn't know? Yep. Oh, wow. So you as a boutique owner could buy something that the wholesaler had knocked off. You had no idea. just thought it was a cool design. Now you're all of a sudden liable. Yeah, but Whoa. for good business practices, a lot of times the wholesaler will indemnify the retailers because obviously that's, I mean, that's their customer, the right. retailers, so they don't want them to file a lawsuit because of their mistake. Right. So a lot of times when it happens, the wholesaler will actually indemnify them for anything that happened. Okay, gotcha. Whoa, it gets so complicated so fast. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I could nerd out on this stuff all day. I find it really fascinating. Um, and I, I wanted to get, we don't have time. I wanted to get to um, talking about like contracts and freelance work. And that's a whole different conversation. So maybe we can have you back on the podcast and do a follow-up episode just to talk about that space of the business, which is completely separate from having your own fashion brand. Um, cause I know I had, yeah, yeah sure. I, it's a big space and it's something I get a lot of questions about how to protect myself as a freelance designer. Do I need a contract? What do I do if someone doesn't pay all this sort of stuff? Um, but yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see <laughs> that for one, a future yes, episode. You do need a contract. <laughs> okay. So yes, you need something in place. Um, we'll, we'll wrap with that and we'll do a whole nother episode on, on that side of business things. Um, it's been so amazing to chat with you, Andrea, and hear your insane plethora of knowledge. I know we just barely like touched the tip of all of this stuff. Um, but I have one last question for you before we wrap up the interview, and I ask this to everybody at the end of the show, and it, it might be a little bit different for you, but um, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? Um, good question. So for you, it's maybe more like working with the fashion industry because obviously you work in law, but like you do specialize in, in the fashion sector. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, a lot of my family, they're just like, oh, so what, you know, what juicy gossip do you have today? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, because I, I, you know, as an attorney, all you do is solve people's problems. So whenever there's an issue, people always come to me with drama. And it's, sometimes it's, it's a lot, but it, it's definitely interesting. And I, I mean, I enjoy it. I, I mean, I love it. I love what I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, outside people, I guess a lot of people don't ask me because of the attorney-client relationship. Um, but, yeah, I do get some good, juicy gossip. And it's awesome because I always know what's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> and so I love it. it. I get just enough of the fashion industry being an attorney because I know what's going on. And I get to know what's going on without really being too involved. Mm-hmm. and too stressed about it. So I, I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, for all the listeners out there who have their own brand or are starting their own brand and need some extra support, um, what's the best way for people to connect with you or work with you? How does that all work? Yeah, so definitely follow me on Instagram, Andrea Sager Law. I'm always posting some good tidbits there, some good um, quick tips, words of advice. And my legal membership, which is called Legalpreneur, that is my all-access path for small businesses to have all access to me. So you pay, you know, either one twenty-seven a month or thirteen ninety-seven a year, and you basically have an attorney on retainer. That's amazing. That is amazing. Well, we will link to all of that in the show notes, and um, definitely. Oh, right. and you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we have your discount code. Yeah. Yeah, so you'll get a discount when you use So Heidi at checkout. Awesome. And that's S E W H E I D I, not S O. <laughs> Although yeah. I have, I'll, I'll admit here right on air that I have not done any type of trademark search ever for any of my business names. So, so Heidi or Successful Fashion Designer. So maybe I should do a quick sweep for that uh, just to CYA. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll get on that. Awesome, awesome. Um, awesome, you guys. We'll definitely check out Andrea and all the amazing knowledge and services she has to offer. This has been so much fun to chat with you. I learned a ton, and I know the listeners did as well. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Andrea, for your awesome advice and ideas and expertise on protecting ourselves as fashionistas, Um, as well as thank you to my husband, Mark, who handles all the tech and editing and makes the show possible, as well as my right-hand woman, Tara, who works very hard behind the scenes to make sure the show gets to you on time and does so, so much more to help out behind the scenes that you guys don't really see, but she is really really amazing and supports me in so many ways so thank you tara um and again thank you for you to you for listening i appreciate each and every one of you um a few quick reminders sfd is way more than a podcast and i would love to get you my best free resources to help you get ahead in the fashion industry you can get all those at soheidi.com it's s-e-w-h-e-i-d-i.com slash email um also follow me on instagram at soheidi And again, if you love the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's always appreciated. And share this episode or another one with a friend. It's the best way to help spread the word about the show. So thank you again so much. And I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.